Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Matt Fox from Boston University. I'm joined once again by my friend and co-host, Dr. Haley Bannock from the University of Toronto. How are you doing, Haley? I'm doing well, thanks, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So we are now at the last episode of the season. So we have now come to the end of another fantastic year of podcasting. We are going to go on a small break after this, and then we got to figure out what we're going to do for season four, right? Yeah, season four. It's hard to believe this is the season finale. It just sped by. It was so much fun doing this with you. It's been really fun. Well, as you know, we are dedicating the entire third season of the podcast, second and third, to the uh, new edition of Modern Epidemiology. And we are going to talk today about interaction, chapter 26. And to do this, we have a phenomenal guest, Dr. Eric Chekin Chekin from University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. Eric is a professor of biostatistics and epidemiology and professor of statistics and data science. His areas of interest is in semi-parametric efficiency theory with application to causal inference, missing data problems, statistical genetics, and mixed model theory. He works on development of statistical and epidemiologic methods to make efficient use of the information and data collected by scientific investigators while avoiding unnecessary assumptions about the underlying data generating mechanism, which all sounds really fantastic to me. Welcome to Sirius Epi, Eric. Thank you so much, Matt and Haley, for having me. I'm really pumped and excited to be here with you guys today. We are so glad you're here. So to start us off, we like to, before we get into the hard stuff, ask a few questions that we can get to know you a little bit better. So I'm curious to know whether there are any movies that you have watched recently and loved. Yeah, so actually a couple of months ago, I, I watched Athena, which is a French movie. And it's essentially a commentary on the situation in France between the what's known as the banlieue, which is the suburbs and typically quote-unquote ghettos of the cities and the city and about conflicts with the authority, police. And it's a beautiful movie, very sad, but also very much speaking mm-hmm. truth to power. And so I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, cool. I recommend it. Where is it available? It's on Netflix. Oh, yeah. great. All all right. I'm about to get onto a, a flight tomorrow. And so I'm going to have to put that onto my uh, download queue. Let me know how you like it. I will. I definitely will. So second question, if you could be on a reality TV show, which one would you choose? You know, I had a really hard time with that one. I'll have to make one up because <laughs> I have never watched reality TV. Uh, so I'm kind of boring either. that way. But, you know, I thought, you know, it would probably have to do something with cooking because I, I cook for my family and, and I make it, I try to make it fun whenever the kids, it's kind of like an opportunity to get them to hang out with me and so I try to make it interesting and fun and and my daughter is particularly interested in, in baking and so we try to do that as a family as well so yeah that it would have to be around that the, the food and that's so fun do you ever watch any of the cooking reality shows where the people get a competition to see who can be the best baker or British baking whatever it is I haven't watched competitions but I've watched some sort of travel shows around food particularly the one by John Ducci, the one in Italy. Stanley Tucci. Stanley Tucci. Thank you. I try to avoid it though because it makes me hungry. <laughs> so <laughs> me too. Me too. I cannot watch those shows without immediately getting up yeah. and finding something to eat. I have a follow-up question, Eric. What are your special dishes that you like to cook? Oh, so one that I really love to cook and and I love to see people, my family, eating it. It's oxtail, oxtail mm, and peanut soup, yep. uh, which yeah. are African dishes. They take a while though to to make, so it has 
be a special event, a special occasion. I have to tell you, so my, my son had this book fair at his school this week, and he brought home a book of Mexican cookbook, Mexican recipes. I don't know why he chose <laughs> this of all the books at the book fair. And all week he's been saying, can we cook something? Can we cook something? So we had he wants to make homemade tortillas. Whoa. So we had to order nice. a tortilla press from Amazon. And tonight is the big night. It's Friday in the real world. And I finally have time to, at four o'clock, we are going to start the tortilla factory in my kitchen. That is so much fun. That's awesome. And that's his initiative. That's that's really great. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And Haley, do you have high expectations for how these are going to turn out? Zero expectations. And just to be (laughs) sure, I added tortilla shells from Old El Paso into my grocery (laughs) cart this week. So I'll either have to do some kind of switcheroo before he notices, or we'll just have to admit the fact that this was a nice activity, but also a failure. And let's just eat our dinner with regular shells. Fair enough. I think it sounds fantastic. All right. So let's uh, let's shift gears and talk about interaction. So Haley and I have talked a little bit about interaction on a previous episode and realized that we actually have very differing views on what interaction is all about. So Eric, could you start us off by just talking about why studying interactions is so important? Yes, I think there are various ways of of saying the same thing. But to me, I think the way interactions have been important in my own research and and talking and work and collaborating with investigators in the health sciences is, uh, particularly in the the context of a treatment, it's important to determine either if the treatment is harmful for some people or whether it benefits other people more than than certain people. And so this idea of effect heterogeneity is incredibly important in thinking about the potential intervention at play, whether it should be withheld or or given to a particular individual falling within a particular set of covariate value. And so this idea is plays that crucial role. It's also important from the perspective of understanding scientific mechanisms. So in the context of genetics, for instance, thinking about genetic determinisms of disease, often important to also consider environmental interactions because that could either amplify or nullify the potential impact of a genetic factor. And so obviously I'm totally on board with that idea. I do always wonder whether when we are looking at heterogeneity, most of the time we're looking at effects being larger or smaller in some subsets, as opposed to the cases where it's really helpful for one group and harmful for another. I know those exist, but I I do wonder whether that's a common experience. But just thinking about the approaches that we use for heterogeneity, I feel the same about mediation as interaction, that we are often struggle to be able to estimate main effects really well. And so, you know, when working with observational data, do you think we are getting ahead of ourselves Sometimes when we start looking at interactions, when we haven't really nailed down the main effects, or do you think it's reasonable, you know, in any study to be thinking about interactions? So I think, I, I guess both. I, I think that I agree with that it often challenges with identifying or estimating interactions accurately, or even detecting them accurately, which is interesting to me because this is a little bit of, of a segue, but we love segues. <laughs> part of causal inference often rely on lack of interactions for identification and therefore relies on this idea that main effects may be a first order effects and then maybe interactions are second order effects and so could maybe be ignored. At the same time, there are many scientific areas where the interaction scales even more higher than, potentially higher than the main effect, than the total effects rather, in the sense that the total effect of an exposure, interaction would contribute to that total effect, but may not account for the entire total effect. And so there's this tension between estimating total effects 
effects versus effects within substrata. And from that perspective, I think estimating total effect will be here to stay. Understanding interactions may be important for reasons of identification, may be important for reasons of promoting or advocating a particular form of interaction for a subgroup. But ultimately, I think the total effect would remain the primary effect of interest. Okay, so if I understood what you just said correctly, basically, you've got an exposure and you've got an outcome. And let's say there are multiple pathways through which the exposure affects the outcome. You could have an, an interaction between some other variable and one of the pathways and not the other. And so the interaction may not be related to the total effect. It may just be related to one part of the effect. No, no, no. Sorry. No, that's not what I mean. So the total effect would be, for instance, we're talking about the total effect of a gene. And the total effect mm -hmm. will be composed of the effect among individuals who do not have the gene plus the mm -hmm. interaction multiplied by the, the proportion of individuals who have the gene. So the contribution of the interaction is part of the total effect. Got it. And therefore, will typically account for a proportion. So it would be easier to estimate, it would be just as easy to estimate an interaction than a total effect if the interaction accounts for most of the total effect yeah. and the interactive exposure were present in most of the population. Nah. Anything away from that, it becomes difficult, harder to detect and estimate a, an interaction. And again, I was just talking about on the additive scale, to be very clear that this may not hold on any other scale. So I was going to ask about something you mentioned, this idea that people have related to first we should maybe look for main effects and then start to look for interactive effects. And that's a very common sort of framework or conceptual model that people have. Sometimes students want to investigate interaction and they're concerned that, oh, there's been no paper looking at the total effect yet. So, you know, should I jump into looking at interaction? Another way that you could look at it, and as you mentioned it a little bit, which is you can look for a, a total effect and an interaction effect in almost the same analysis. And so which model do you work under when you're thinking about these frameworks? Yeah, so that's interesting. So let's make me draw a distinction between total effects and main effects and then interaction. So total effect would be the total effect of an exposure A. Main effect would be the effect of exposure A conditional on exposure B without necessarily involving an interaction. You may or may not involve an interaction. An interaction would fill in the gap. And so my own philosophy is typically to go for the total effect. This becomes tricky if, in fact, the variable that you suspect might be involving an interaction is a confounder. In which case, usually mm -hmm. you would run, the most standard approach would be to run a regression, in which case you will get the main effect or a main effect and interaction. And so from my perspective, it would be perhaps best to proceed in steps. First, get the, to the total effect, which doesn't require modeling the confounder. There are alternative ways of getting a total effect without having to use a regression method. And this would be completely agnostic as to whether or not there's an interaction. And then the second step might be then investigating the potential for an interaction. And this sort of goes with my general philosophy about data analysis that we first start with the questions that are easiest to answer, making as fewer assumptions as possible. And then we move on to the harder question, still trying to make as fewer assumptions as possible. I really like that approach. And I think we often don't necessarily go down that road. So that's it's really helpful to have it I'd said here. I'm glad you said that because I just want to highlight one fact about the exchange we just had, yeah. which is to draw this distinction between total effects and main effects, which is often conflated. Yeah. And I think we, we ought to do a better job in, in 
been training the next generations of ethnologists to really think carefully about that distinction and about the level of ambition of giving a particular sample size, data set, number of covariates, all of that. Maybe try with a less ambitious goal and scale up as things get more and more interesting. I completely agree on that one. Okay, so I want to just jump here. So the book makes this distinction between three different concepts, causal interaction, effect modification, and statistical interaction. So I guess first question would be, do you agree that those are helpful distinctions to make? And if so, what do you see as the differences between those? Yeah, so this is a, a debate that I've often had or sometimes had with Tyler Vanderweel, who mm-hmm. wrote a paper on this distinction. I think it's a useful consideration for people to make. The distinction, I believe, is really about the role of confounding. I, I believe mm-hmm. a, a statistical interaction, there's no issue with causality. You have a model and the interaction will be scale dependent depending on what scale your model is on, the logit or the additive or the multiplicative scale. And you're only interested in conditional means and whether or not those conditional means depend on covariates. The association between a covariate on a conditional mean varies with another covariate on that specific scale. So this is statistical modeling. There really isn't any consideration for causal inference from that perspective. I believe where things get a little bit more subtle is when we start giving consideration to confounding concerns. So if we have two exposures, and let's say we're in the context of a randomized trial, which is, I believe, the the cleanest context, so that one of the exposures is unconfounded, and we have a second covariate we wish to assess interactions with, then the question is whether or not we also consider the confounding of that second factor, whether we've addressed it, in which case we can talk about a causal interaction, because we have a joint intervention on both of those, and we can ask whether the what is referred to as the control direct effect of the randomized experiment condition on the second, intervening on the second inter- on the second variable varies with the value of the second variable. So that would be a causal in- interaction. But one could still ask about interactions that do have a causal interpretation, even if that second non-randomized variable is confounded by hidden factors. And that would be asking about a causal effect within strata of that second variable. So you might notice that I ducked away from terminology <laughs> and because yeah. I think the context, once we give it an explanation, we all know what we mean. The terminology, I think, has been used to mean various different things. And I'm as guilty as the next statistician or epidemiologist of doing that. And perhaps I had some particular interpretation in mind, but it's always helpful to clarify which interpretation you have in mind when using such terminology, whether or not other people agree with the terminology is a different issue, but at least they will understand what you mean. I agree with that. If you're clear in what you're talking about, what terms we actually use are probably less important. It would be nice to have a set of terms that everybody understood and agreed as to what they meant just to make it easier to communicate. But I would certainly agree that if you can be clear in what you're referring to, then there's really no issue. Yes. No, I I just wanted to also clarify because I I think I I was a little bit harsh in my depiction of Tyler's paper. I didn't mean to depict it as being not a very useful thing to think about. And in fact, in his paper, I think he concludes by saying that essentially agreeing with what I just said, which is that these terminologies have been used differently in different contexts. As long as we keep straight what we mean, it doesn't matter all that much, ultimately, which word you're using as long as we know what we mean in that context. You actually answered my question without me asking it, which is I was going to ask what are your differences of opinion or, or similar opinions related to, to Tyler's paper? So you beat good, me to it. Good, good. <laughs> I dodged that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so you made this point that you can look at effects stratified by a, a second variable, even if that variable's association is confounded. We can still talk about the main effects stratified by a second variable. And I think that's a really useful way to think about it. You also mentioned a number of times scale. Do you have a preferred scale on which we should be assessing interactions? 
Well, no, I do not have a preferred scale on which we should be assessing interaction, <laughs> broadly speaking. I think the book makes this point that additive causal interactions have this nice interpretation that they will tell you what excess or decrease, let's say, mortality or disease outcome you might expect by intervening on, on the exposures. And that's basically a property of the fact that the expected value of a difference of kind of factuals, finding an interaction at the individual level, is the, the yeah. contrast of the expectations. And so the expectation distribute. And, and so this is a nice feature that when you compute something, you know that uh, though you're computing a mean, it can be interpreted as, at the individual level in, in stating that there are some individuals for whom that contrast is not zero. So that's that clear notion of causality in the context of interaction. Now, as the book also highlights, there are ways of getting at the same answer about the presence of absence of additive interactions by using other scales, like the multiplicative scale, the RERI, which I think we'll probably discuss a little later, is the most common yep. way of doing so. But there are others. And so from that perspective, I think that the additive model has that additional kind of special place uh, in the context of public health and medicine. And so if I understand what you're saying correctly, though, and I, this is something that maybe I'm just reading my own thoughts into this, but that the additive scale is the one that, generally speaking, we care most about. And, and so even in the cases where we're using a relative model to get at the interaction, like a RIRI, we are still getting at the additive interaction. Am I interpreting that correctly? So the only caveat I was uh, I will make is that it depends what you intend to do with the interaction. So just to put in context, mm -hmm. the, the interpretation that I gave about the additive scale was if you have in mind that you're, you really want, do want to learn about a policy and its impact on your, on your population. There are other reasons, there potentially are other reasons why you might care about an interaction, in which case on a given scale. And I do want to separate the estimate from the estimator because I can define an additive interaction using any model I want, as long as it's identified, and just simply create the contrast after having estimated that model that I care about. So from that perspective, the contrast versus the model that's being used are really separate. I know we like to think if mm -hmm. I'm fitting a multiple model, I do have an interaction on the, on the log scale. That is one interaction, but I can always take that multiple model, in, at least in a cohort study, and transform it to learn about the additive interaction. And that would be a combination of all the coefficients. And so from that perspective, I think if, if you tell me what you're interested in, then we can talk about what scale, which scale is most relevant. And fair enough. And do you have any thoughts in mind or examples where you would care more about the relative interaction more than the additive? So, yeah, I will give you one. I mean, the, re the reason can be shut down. And I think we might talk about it <laughs> later as well. So in case control studies, if it turns out that you're looking at, let's take a gene genetic factor and environmental factor that are known to be independent in the population, the chapter presents a result on the case-only estimator. And the case-only estimator is one mm -hmm. that yep. targets the multiplicative interaction and does so in an efficient way in the sense that it gets you the smallest standard error possible under the given model. Whereas that's not true for the additive interaction in the sense that the additive interaction is not even identified without any mm -hmm. additional assumption. And so from that perspective, I really do care about that multiplicative interaction and potentially can convert it with additional information into learning about other kinds of interactions if I'm able to identify the entire risk function. So like if I knew the base 
baseline risk or the marginal risk of the disease or outcome in the population. So that's not a subject matter reason for mm-hmm. caring about the multi interaction, but it is one that tries to address a statistical consideration. That's interesting because that's one I certainly knew about and yet never think about in the context of this particular debate. So that's actually really helpful. Just to, because I think this is an interesting question. So just going back to this issue about, is it easier or harder to identify interactions? So in the context where interactions are small and it's hard to find them on any scale, there is an interesting result that shows that if you have a covariate, which doesn't interact with with the causal effect of interest on the additive scale Mm -hmm. and does not interact with an unmeasured confounder on the multiplicative scale, that fact, this lack of interaction actually gives you identification in presence of an unmeasured confounder. So a, a variable that does not interact with an unmeasured confounder on the additive scale nor on the multiplicative scale actually leads to identification, which I think is interesting because in many contexts where we complain that it's hard to find interaction because they're small and therefore we can essentially ignore them, that in fact would allow us to buy identification in context of unmeasured confounding. So there's a really interesting connection between interactions and confounding. And this actually also comes through in IV analysis, right? Often in IV analysis, you require an assumption of homogeneity for identification. So I've always found that connection really, really important. I, I was starting to see that it wasn't really discussed or emphasized in the chapter. So that would be one recommendation for the next edition of the chapter. That is something I never thought about. And that's actually Agreed, a yeah. really interesting property, which I think, yeah, we should be taking more advantage of. Okay, so let me ask you this question then. So if we know that you can have, just talking now about effect modification, you can have effect modification on, say, the relative scale and not on the different scale. And you could have, in theory, the opposite. Does that in and of itself tell us anything important, given that, at least in what I see, most of the literature looks for interaction on the relative scale? Are we making a mistake by looking in the relative scale? Or is it still useful? It's just maybe not telling us about that mechanistic interaction we, we might want to know about. Yeah, so I think it's useful to quantify them, but I wouldn't stop there. And and again, this is going back yeah. to our discussion earlier, which is if, if you really do care about interpreting interventions or potential impact of interventions or identifying a subgroup for whom the, the intervention could be impactful, then you should not just stop at detecting the best possible multiplicative model, but then translate that into one that would be informative about the, the impact of such intervention. And so that would be on the additive scale. And so I would say it's important to investigate such interaction on any scale, but ultimately I wouldn't stop there. And this is again, just going back to make, having clear in mind what your ultimate goal is that you want to learn from the data. I think it was Matt's question, segued very casually from interaction Oops. to effect modification. Speaking of Tyler and, and another one of his very well-known papers about the distinction between interaction and effect modification. So this is something Matt and I discussed when we were talking about the chapter. So Eric, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you define the distinction between them and what would be relevant for students or people learning about these concepts, how to keep them separate in their minds or whether we even need to keep them separate in their minds. Yeah, so I I feel like we sort of touched upon that earlier in the sense that, again, it goes back to are we doing a modeling exercise, in which case we're talking about statistical interactions. And from that perspective, I'm not as picky about the term effect modification. I think most epidemiology think of effect as being a causal effect. That's not the case for a lot of other disciplines. They're not necessarily thinking about causality per se. They might be thinking about prediction even and still think about an effect, which is the contribution of a particular variable in a given model. And so effect modification in that sense, to me, is something that is more universal. And then likewise, interaction could be causal interaction or statistical interactions. And so I try to stir away from those types of debates because I think, again, once you make clear what interpretation you're seeking for, 
that terminology to me is it's second order. But I do understand that it can be confusing if we use terms that are in one discipline means one thing and in a different discipline, people haven't really carefully thought about the issues. Which, you know, I hate to depict statistician in, in a bad light, but I do think that epidemiologists perhaps are more careful about thinking about causality in general as a field than maybe some of the other data science disciplines, statistics being one of them. Isn't that what we do for a living, which is just debate concepts like this? <laughs> is that what they're paying us for? Yeah, that's yeah, what my effort is, is devoted to. I'm pretty sure that one doesn't come up on my annual review. <laughs> you should add it. Did you debate enough concepts this year? I agree completely about once you understand the concepts and can describe the concepts, that's by far and away the most important part of it. But I do find at the beginning when you're introducing these yeah. concepts, the labels you attach to them really matter. And I think that it's a point of confusion that I see a lot in students, the distinction between interaction and the term effect modification in particular. And so that's why I was asking about that. No, I appreciate that. I, and I agree. And not just among students. I think postdocs and faculty of often course. are confused about what they mean by effect modification. For sure. And clinicians too. Yeah. I mean, clinicians are trained in a, in a completely different way and think about these things in a, in a completely different way and often use terms like subgroups more often when mm -hmm. really we would call those, you know, analyses of effect modification or interaction yeah. dependent. Yeah. So you just made an interesting point, Eric, about prediction. And students often when I teach and I try to make the distinction between interaction and effect measure modification based on what you want to say is the causal assumptions you're making. And then students always say to me, okay, well, when would I really though care about effect measure modification? Like when would I care that there is a difference in the magnitude of the effect of one exposure, making no causal statements about the second variable on the relative scale, if we think that the additive scale is the one that is really telling us about the mechanistic interaction. And you were saying here that we're thinking about prediction, then really the scale, it doesn't necessarily, we don't have to worry about the causal assumptions and the scale is we could use either scale. But in that case, wouldn't we at that, you know, at that point, we wouldn't really be making statements about the actual coefficients themselves so much as we would care about how well we can predict the outcome? Yeah, no, so I, I agree with that. We would only care about how well we predict the outcome according to some metric. The role of an interaction there, I think what's important about it is whether or not you get a better prediction with or without the interaction yeah. and the magnitude of how much better you do with or without the interaction. And I think that's where just referring to the fact that you have that interaction effect modifier is a useful thing to think about in, in thinking about in building the model. Okay. So it seems like, and I'm getting the vibes from you, that you would agree, at least at what I think, which is the additive scale is, is usually the one that we care about more often. But as you say, there are lots of different ways to get at that, even in relative models. But the counter argument that I have heard to this, and I've seen it in the literature, and I've also just heard people say it, is that there are people who have had lots of experience fitting models with interactions, and they find that the relative measures, you know, your risk ratios, or your odds ratios, or whatever it is, are the ones that tend to display more homogeneity across lots of different variables, and that would be evidence that the world actually behaves in a in a relative way. Have you heard that argument? And yeah. if so, does it resonate at all? I, yeah. I Personally, it doesn't resonate with me from an argument standpoint, but I certainly couldn't refute the idea that if the world shows a lot of homogeneity on the relative scale, that that might not be telling us something. Yeah. I don't know exactly what. Yeah, I think it's a flawed observation, and I'll try to explain why. Okay. So this argument has been made by many, and let me start step back a little bit. So Tyler and Pong Ding have a, a paper that he never published, but it's been around quite a bit, a technical report where they go through an exercise of computing the volume of the additive model that is compatible with lack of an interaction. And they do the same thing mm -hmm. for a multiplicative model and the odds ratio model. And
And Limbo analyzes that paper and deconstructs the claim. And the claim there is exactly what you said, that in fact, the claim is that the multiple scale shows more homogeneity than the additive scale. And that's because the volume, according to how they define volume, we can get into that in a second, of the additive scale is less than one, whereas the for the multiple scale, it's one, the maximum being one. What Limbo points out, and this is a very well-known fact, but somehow ignored, is that the issue with the additive scale is that it's not variational independent from the intercept, which is the baseline risk. And this is a real issue for different baseline risk. The effect size is restricted to the within a certain range and not the entire minus one one range, which means that it's not surprising you don't get the whole volume. Essentially, there are some values of one parameter that are not allowed given values of the other parameter. And so what he does in that paper, he shows, and this is basically because we chose to use those coordinates, the baseline risk and the additive effect, that there are other coordinates, and this is differential geometry arguments, that there are other coordinates that will parameterize the model in terms of the risk difference you're interested in, and a different quantity that is does not impact the size the risk difference and covers the entire model, in which case the volume is also one. And so what that says, to summarize it, is that we have no idea on what scale nature operates. So there are two scales you can use. You can use Limbo's model and you can use Tyler and Hong's model, and they seem to give these different conclusions. And we have no idea which one nature uses, and there are a million of them. And so you can make that argument go the other direction by just changing the coordinates. So this is a mathematical artifact in the sense that if you're using the additive scale for proportion, it's like you know the same argument that linear models are not good models for binary outcomes. And that's because there are some constraints that a linear model doesn't satisfy. This is exactly the same issue. If you correctly model a linear model so that it satisfies the constraint, then there's there are no differences in terms of volume. And one cannot make that claim anymore that one scale is more homogeneous than another scale. So that was a long answer and a bit technical, but I recommend that short note. It was incredibly clarifying. It's a lot clearer than what I just said. And so I think it settles the debate as far as I'm concerned. I am going to have to look into this because I am disturbed to find out that we don't know which model nature uses. I mean, it feels to me like somehow we should know that. I don't know why, but it feels to me like we why should know that. Why would you ever think we would know that? I don't know, but it feels to me like we should. Well, so I have to say, I don't feel disturbed at all by this because we are looking at data and, and we're looking at, we're probing at, at some mechanisms yep. that nature decided on. And it's not like physics where we actually have a, a model of everything that's happening in the universe and we can point to how nature affects the world that we live in. We basically, we have a really hard inverse problem. We're trying to learn about what nature does from data, noisy data that we collect. And we have these silly models that we try to fit to those data, but they don't really say anything about the biology of what's really going on. I'm now <laughs> going to have to rethink everything. <laughs> what you're raising, this conversation about nature in the context of interactions also reminds me of sufficient causes and causal pies and understanding what are the quote unquote slices of our pie and whether it matters and whether the level of complexity that we think about really matters in terms of interact. So do you think it really ever matters to individuals who have to make those decisions about what the true causal pie looks like, what the sufficient causes are? So that's a good question. So there is a fairly, it's not huge, but there's a large literature on causal pie and sufficient cause. And I don't think anyone uses them except as a scholarly mm -hmm. exercise. Not to speak down on it, but it's just that I don't know that the data that we have are a sufficient resolution that these causal models really uncover how biology and nature works. And so this comes about also through the debate between causal interactions versus biologic interactions. And I think Tyler had a really beautiful paper on this. Tyler's name is coming up a lot in this conversation because he's written a lot about yep. interaction, a lot more <laughs> than I have. And so to me, that's one argument about, you know, let's not 
not overinterpret what we learn from data. We can think about it on the aggregate, but really trying to get down to biological mechanism from these noisy data that we have, plus our causal models. I think it's a it's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, though I like the sufficient cause model, as you say, only for a, an intellectual exercise, because I think the counterfactual model is it does a really nice job of explaining what we mean by interactions, but it isn't as specific about the fact that there can be multiple and fairly complex mechanisms yeah. to get to the same data. And I think the sufficient cause model, you can illustrate that really well, but I would agree with you that that doesn't lead to anything that I'm going to do differently. It just helps me sort of get a better understanding of how potentially nature could be working. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I didn't mean to say that we're not useful. And I completely agree with what you said. Mm -hmm. And I think that we had tools to do different things. These causal pi are really good conceptual tools to think about particular research areas we're working in or how to we might interpret a particular experiment that we want to engage in and plan for it and testing different mechanisms. And so I do think that they have that utility. But from what I just meant to say, beyond that, it's it's hard to see how they can advance any of the other challenges that we face interpreting data causally. I would absolutely agree with that. And I want to ask you, so you said Tyler makes the distinction between biologic or mechanistic interactions. I have to admit, like I get a little lost in thinking about the difference between those. Do those distinctions have important meanings to you? Yes, they do. I mean, this is, again, I think biologic interactions, what people mean is if you could go down and understand the biological processes that lead to the observing a particular outcome and break them down. So that, to me, it's closer to a physical science. It has to mm -hmm. be experimental. Yeah. We really, it has to be like experimental physics, and we have to be able to assess that empirically. And to some extent, we, these days, we can do some of that with CRISPR and, and things like that. But just from the epi perspective of trying to pull out such knowledge from data, I think that's the point that these causal interactions might tell you something about whether there exists an individual who would only have the disease, let's say, if they had both exposures for binding exposures and not otherwise. That's something that we can learn from data, but that doesn't speak to the actual biological mechanism that leads to that phenomenon. There may be many of them that lead to that phenomenon. And so it's, it seems to me, as we said, it's a useful tool for thinking through the processes, but it does we don't necessarily learn anything specifically about the different types of interactions from the data. Would that be a fair statement? I, I, yes, I think that would be a fair statement. Okay. We've mentioned Tyler's name a number of times, partly because he's obviously he's written a book on this topic. Well, he wrote this chapter. And, and this chapter, but a, a whole book related to interactions and mediation. So I also think that the way that I was taught about interaction 20 years ago is pretty different from the way that I think we have think about it now. Maybe it's not totally different, but I think there have been a lot of advances. In your view, what would you say are, are the biggest advances in our thinking over the past 10 to, to 20 years on interaction? So I think I mentioned a couple of them. So for instance, I mentioned the ability to learn interactions with more efficiency. So the case only estimator would be one of them. Many contexts where there might be certain independencies in the data that could improve your efficiency. That's one example, but there are other examples. I would also say that the role of interactions, as I mentioned earlier, in the context of identification. So a really neat example of that, I think, is in the context of IV. So IV, again, instrumental variable for estimating, identifying a causal effect that's subject to a measure confounding. There are three conditions for that. You need the IV to be associated with the exposure. We need the IV not to have a direct effect on the outcome. And we need the IV to be independent of the source of a measure confounding between the exposure and outcome. And typically, you need a fourth assumption to get identification. So in the context of binary exposure and binary IV, maybe the most popular assumption that's made in econometrics is actually that the effect of the, the IV on the exposure is monotone increasing, that there are no individual who would, in the context of non-compliance, for instance, who do the, exactly the opposite of what you're assigned them to take the treatment when you 
assign them not to take the treatment and vice versa. That assumption is actually an assumption about homogeneity. It's a very strong mm-hmm. homogeneity assumption at an individual level. And to me, and again, I think I mentioned that earlier, just recognizing that essentially all IV methods rely for identification on an assumption of no interaction. To me, it was a bit of a revelation that interactions play an important role in how we talk about causal effects, not only in the context of where things are perfect and there's no confounding, but also in the context of where they might be on measure confounding. Just a quick trip down memory lane. I actually learned that from you and Maria Gleimor at SER. You gave a tutorial seminar years ago. I don't know if you remember it. I do. But, and I attended. And that is where I learned that. I was pretty surprised because I somehow had missed that assumption. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. I do remember that. I, we should do it again soon. Yeah, it was great. It was fantastic. Okay, so the last thing I want to ask you about is just sort of the practical side of estimating these things. So if you've got cohort data and you can estimate a risk difference and stratify it or you can fit an interaction term or whatever it is. But you mentioned a way of like, say, a case control study where we can only fit a, an odds ratio. The I don't know if you call it RERI or RERI or relative excess risk due to interdependence. But this is this sort of scaled measure that we can get at whether or not there is additive interaction in a relative model. It doesn't necessarily tell us about the magnitude, but it tells us whether or not it's present. And when I was first taught this, this sort of seemed like such an amazing thing. And yet I don't actually see it used all that often. You do see it in case yeah. control studies sometimes, but I wouldn't say you see it commonly. So I'm, I'm just curious your thoughts. I mean, given that it only tells us about the presence of the interaction, not the magnitude, although my understanding is with some additional assumptions, you can get that as well. Do you find it a particularly useful measure? Yes. No, I think the RERI, I'll pick that formulation. <laughs> the- That's what I use too. Okay. Matt keeps trying to tell me it's RERI and I refuse Riri. to use that. I say RERI. So I'm glad know. you do as well. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's used It's used in situations that you mentioned where you're in a case control study where you might be interested in assessing the presence of interaction. And for a long time, there were no other options. So I wrote a paper a few years ago and I checked this morning because I was curious. I had to remind myself what the paper said. And <laughs> the title was a bit of an arrogant title. It meant it was something like to the effect of a general approach for testing gene environment interactions in case control studies. And I think it has 10 citations and it's... It's been years, so it hasn't gone around very much. But what I showed in that paper <laughs> is that RERI, as we know, is identifies. So I'm I'm, a little bit, I'm pivoting a little bit from your question because I'm going to talk about power yeah. because that's okay. the key of RERI is testing. There is no interpretation without additional knowledge about some baseline risk. RERI is the additive interaction divided by the baseline risk, the P double unexposed individual, the proportion yep. of the disease, which is typically not known. And it's divided by a fraction. So the fraction blows it up by some amount and presumably you get some power for detection. So in that paper, I propose a different measure, which is the same quantity, the, the additive interaction, divided by the marginal proportion in the population. And I show that yep. even though the marginal proportion of the risk, the marginal risk of the outcome in the population is unknown, that that ratio actually is identified and can be a lot more powerful for detection than the RERI. And, and I demonstrate how you can, you can identify and, and construct a test statistic for that ratio. The only reason I mention this is because RER has a huge limitation in practice, which may or may 
not be why it's not often used is that it doesn't deal well with covariates, particularly if, if the covariates are, are continuous mm. or if an exposure is continuous. And the reason that is, is because it's mm. usually, let's say, even if you have a rare disease, which is often the case for case control data, in order for, under the null of no additive effect, your logistic model would include an interaction term because you don't have an interaction on the additive model. Both exposures have an effect on the outcome. Therefore, the necessarily will be an interaction on, on the logistic scale, but it will never be a product term. It will be some crazy function in order to be compatible with the fact that the null holds on the additive scale. So any model you would fit, it will essentially be misspecified unless you do a completely non-parametric model. Mm -hmm. So to me, that means RARI is completely useless if you want to condition on covariates because it's always going to give you a find an effect when there's none because you're going to be biased. Your type 1 error is going to go downhill. So I'm doing a little bit of self-promotion here. In that paper... <laughs> If you haven't noticed. So in that paper, what I showed is that you can actually estimate the alternative me method, which is the additive interaction divided by the marginal risk in the population by simply modeling both exposures, conditional on covariates, and taking their covariance in the cases only. Turns out that actually identifies. And so you get away from having to model the risk, conditional covariates. And you can model the two exposures and combine them to get their covariance among the cases. And that would actually give you a more powerful and more flexible way of assessing interactions. And so for people out there who aren't aware of this, uh, it's a statistics and medicine paper <laughs> that describes this. Hey, everybody go download <laughs> it and cite it. Yeah, we'll link it with this episode. I mean, it sounds like a useful paper for people to check out in this context. Well, I think that is a good place for us to stop, particularly because after this conversation, I now have to go back and update so many of my teaching slides based on things that I've either been saying wrong or just left out the, oh, the details yeah. on. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a lot of, a lot of work cut out for You're me. You're too kind, Matt. Uh, but I don't believe you. No way. <laughs> it was really fun to, to meet with you in, in France. I'm a big fan of both your works. And uh, so thank you so much for, for having me here. Today. I had a great time. It was so much fun. We really, really appreciate it. It was fun and so informative. You're very clear at explaining these concepts. Like You should just come and teach my classes. Oh. Never mind updating my slides. Exactly. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting upcoming in June in Austin. I have already booked my flight. That's how uh, ahead of things I am. I know you have too, You're Haley. such a keener. I know. Yeah. It also gets you access to the SER library where you can access some really cool learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. And a reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We really appreciate you listening and look out for our next episode coming up after a brief hiatus. Yeah, looking forward to season four. Bye, Haley. Bye.